Welcome to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. The Transform Your Teaching Podcast is a service of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. We seek to inspire higher education faculty to adopt innovative teaching and learning practices. Thanks for joining our conversation. Welcome to Transform Your Teaching. I'm Jared Piles, and with me is Dr. Robert McDowell. We work at the Center for Teaching and Learning uh, at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. Today, we are having a conversation with one of our faculty members here on campus, Dr. Heather Curavilla, who works in the Department of Science and Math. Welcome, Dr. Curavilla. Thank you. We are very happy to have you here. Why don't you give us a little bit of background or bio? Okay, so this is my 26th year at Cedarville University. I have taught a lot of classes. <laughs> I'll give you what I currently teach just to narrow it down a little bit. Okay. Um, everything in cell biology is pretty much my domain. So cell biology, advanced cell biology, um, signal transduction, biology of cancer. And um, I teach research sections that are related to those topics, most specifically related to biology of cancer and um, how genes are expressed inside cells. So basically how cells get messed up. Uh, and we're, we're basically trying to understand how they work normally and what makes them go crazy in the hopes that we can design better ways to make therapies to fix that for people. When I came, um, we didn't have much of a research program for biology. And the way they recruited me, honestly, was saying, hey, we want to get this going. And the reason that I wanted to teach in a primarily undergraduate institution is because research is a really good way of making disciples. You usually have just a few people with you. They are basically your apprentices, or I call them my minions. Um, <laughs> and the minions are learning from you how to do things and how to think, basically how to problem solve. Like, if you want to know the answer to question X, what do you have to do in order to get it? And then depending on what the qu answer that question is, what do you need to do next in order to get that answer? Um, and in society now, even more than when I came here, um, there is a little bit, now there's a major bias against uh, Christians in science. But even when I was um, just a new scientist, there was quite a bias that if you believed that God created, you couldn't do, do good science because evolution is supposed to be the fundamental backbone of biology, right? And mm -hmm. so... If you believe that God created, you're intrinsically at a disadvantage. Um, and so one of the major things I wanted to teach my students, other than how to understand both creation and evolution well, which is important, is also just to be courageous. In other words, you shouldn't be intimidated by people that have a different worldview, but the same scientific tools as you do. In fact, diversity in science makes it better. It makes it stronger. Yeah. Having different worldviews we can come at it with helps us to come up with more ideas and potentially more cures. And so I want them to be bold. Um, and that is something that, uh, you know, God tells us over and over in scripture, do not fear, right? Mm -hmm. So um, one of the most important things I think they can learn by doing stuff is to be confident in their thinking abilities and um, in their uh, just see it as a worship of God almost and be fearless about it. And so when they leave here, regardless of whether they go into medicine, go into research, go into education, that they could take that boldness with them, not to be arrogant, but not to be, I don't know, scared. Uh, mm. It sounds like you have the philosophy of teaching. 
I think we just heard a good bit of it. Willingness to solve problems. I heard, don't be fearful. Yeah, those are both important. One of the things that PhD programs look for the most in biology, and probably any hard science, is perseverance. So they want to make sure that the students that they accept into their programs have done research because it teaches problem-solving skills, but things don't always work. So just as important as the problem-solving skills, it teaches you persistence. Like, you have to figure stuff out. Um, things are not going to be optimized for you when you try something for the first time. It's different than a lab that's been done before that you do just to learn a technique. Uh, and so, yeah, you need to be um, you need to be confident, you need to be bold, and you need to be persistent. Have you always been that way? Or was there something in your life before you came to Cedarville or before you started teaching that that motivated you with that particular, philosophy, or have you grown that over time since being at Cedarville? So I, like the majority of bio majors that we get, um, was pre-med. Okay. So came into um, my biology classes, first two years, did everything everybody else did. Between my sophomore and junior year of college, I did a um, pre-med practicum of sorts where you rotate through all the places in a hospital, and that was nasty. It did not I mean, it was not a good fit. Um, I realized that it was super stressful for me and just not, I didn't feel like I could do that. And the reason I was pre-med is because I wanted to fulfill the Great Commission. So my my um, goal in being pre-med was to be a missionary doctor. Okay. So I had also been a lab assistant for um, one of my professors. And I came back uh, my junior year and I was working with her in the lab, setting up things and teaching her labs. And um, they actually did let us do the, the lecture in the beginning of the lab. So I was teaching the labs too. And uh, I told her I didn't know what I was going to do now because my whole Great Commission idea that I thought God was calling me to had changed. And I didn't feel like I was equipped in my temperament to do the whole um, missionary doctor thing. I'm like, I don't think I can do it. It's just, it's not how God has made me. And she was like, you know, the reason that I work at a Christian university is because it gives you such good opportunities to disciple. And she's like, I really think you should consider that. I think you'd be good at it. I've seen you teach in the lab. And at the time, I was really intimidated by that thought. Um, people who knew me as an undergrad are really surprised that I even talk. Um, I was so far on the introvert scale as an undergraduate that uh, the, the career tests told me I should be a mortician or a truck driver. <laughs> so anyway, they hear that. And, you know, I, I saw that and I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. But um but I uh, thought about what Dr. Whiting said and, you know, kind of, I didn't blow it off, but it, it kind of puzzled me. And I just kept, you know, taking my classes. I mean, I'm not going to drop everything and doing my lab work. And a couple of weeks later, I remember coming in and saying, so if I was interested in doing what you're doing, what are the next career steps? Because the only steps I knew of is getting ready for med school. Um, and she's like, oh, yeah, you got to go get a PhD and um, then you can uh, mentor people. Um, and so that's basically from the day I started my PhD program, that was my goal. 
I got a lot of pushback about the fact that I wanted to teach. Like the the mentality there was, you know, teachings for losers. The the smart people, <laughs> no, literally the smart people do research, and the second string quarterbacks teach. And I was told flat out that I was wasting my brain. They're like, you're good at problem solving. You shouldn't do that. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I want to disciple people. I, and I found an advisor who supported that, um, which is kind of amazing because there's not that many people in science who would. Not only did he support it, but he was proud of it. Like he would go tell his um, his friends about the job offers I was getting to teach and things like that. What school was this? Uh, State University of New York at Buffalo. Oh, my word. Wow. So SUNY Buffalo. Big UB, the big, you know, it's yeah. a big school. Um, and... Yeah. So he was like, oh, yeah, this is great. Um, but he even understood he was a theist. I don't know that he was a believer, but he mm. um, understood my desire to disciple. And he gave us undergrads that we could coach when we were grad students. So when wow. we worked in his lab. So I already had an idea from the lab because of what God did through my advisor that this was a great way to mentor. Research was a great way to mentor. And then I came and interviewed at Cedarville and they're like, hey, we need help building our research program. And I'm like, ooh, great way to mentor. You know, in a huge class, that's a lot harder to do. But right. in research, you spend hours together. You get to know each other really well. And you think of Jesus spending that time with his disciples. And it's, yeah, it's it's really similar in some ways. So how many students do you have? It depends on the semester. So a research class is typically capped at five people. Um, because that's about what you can manage in, in a project. Um, if I'm doing a couple of sections, like this semester, I have 13 people. Um, so I have two sections. One of them has five. One of them has eight. Um, we had to get them in to graduate. And uh, they are doing great, though, because I just got us a bigger classroom. And then we have groups. And, and everybody's got their own little thing that we're working on together. And we're trying to do something that's never been done. So if we can successfully do it, we get a publication. If we can't successfully do it, everybody learned a lot. So we figured it's a win-win. So tell us about how you worked with the online biology, because when I was a student here, way back in 2000, I took online bio through WebCT. Mm. And I believe you were the instructor of record of that. So walk us through that, because I'm pretty sure that was pretty early on in online mm -hmm. bio. How did that start? You know, what challenges did you face? And then throughout, and you've also worked with us with a couple of different iterations of it. Okay. You know, walk through that and tell us about it. So when we first started um, developing the online bio class, um, I wasn't the first person that wrote the class. Joe Francis was. So he's at Master's College now. Okay. Um, and when he uh, moved to Master's College, I inherited it. And so when you took it, I had inherited it. So I helped him with that first iteration. So the first iteration we had, basically we had um, notes for the students to read and then we would make them lab kits. And the lab kits were kind of, um, they had a microscope in them and they had some equipment. They had some yeast and some various things that they could experiment with at home. And then they, the um, people taking it would have to go out, get maybe some plant samples or different things. Um, and this is all bringing back memories, by the way. So yeah. you, you yeah. had to do these yes, things. Yes, these are all things that I did, yes. Yeah, did you have to go take any pictures of nature and things like that? No, or? I don't think, no, I didn't do that far, but I had to go out and find samples in my backyard yeah. and have a microscope. All stuff, yeah, so. and the microscopes didn't work great um, because they we gave them the ones that don't plug into the wall. They're the mirror-based. <laughs> 
And yeah. so just that was a challenge. So like you're you're putting out, so your students are far from you and it's not like you can go focus their microscope for them, which is right. literally one of my main roles in any lower division classes to focus microscopes for people. I mean, <laughs> I'm really good at it. And anyway, but you can't do that when your students are far away. So we quickly found out that this, it was kind of a nightmare. Stuff would break or, you know, and so one of the reasons we actually went to an online lab format for that class was just technical difficulties. We felt bad for our students not having someone there to fix the oopsies that wouldn't happen, like whether it was equipment related or, you know, oh, our seeds are all duds, their enzymes are no good or yeah. whatever it might be. There was no one there to fix it. And then also it was just a lot of time for people in our department to even pack the little kits because, sure. you know, you have... Wow. Yeah. So eventually we went to the online lab. Um, now there's companies that will make you online kits and they've worked a lot of their bugs out. And so we have gone to them for now. So we've gone kind of back and forth. We started with a model where you were doing your own experiments. It was like your own personal lab in your own personal space. Then we went to, we will do these exercises virtually and give you some idea of what that feels like, uh, um, knowing that it's not quite the same as hands-on, but a lot of conceptually, it can be quite similar. Uh, and then we're like, now we we have a, a system where um, theoretically, a lot of the bugs are worked out. Um, one of the things I dislike about the, the actual lab packet that we're using now is um, we can't help the students. Again, if they have technical difficulties, we're doing the best we can over email uh, to try to troubleshoot that. The good thing is sometimes things don't work. And what I keep telling my students is that's real. Like the, the virtual ones where, you know, you do this and all the stuff's going perfectly that's fake news. Um, science doesn't work like that. So um, you do, you know, you. It, it is nice to let them actually experience, oh, you know, somebody tipped us over or, yeah, I forgot and I left my seeds in, you know, the back of my truck for six weeks and just pulled them out now. And guess what? Nothing germinated. Well, yeah, you killed the enzymes in them, dude. That's how it works. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of nice to let them see that and and be like, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, write up the data you got. That's what you do. Yeah. Like, you you give me your observations. Tell me what you learned. You still learn something. Like, you can kill seeds. Um, that's, yeah, you know, that's your feedback. That's legit. How yeah. to kill seeds. Yeah. Yep, yep. I mean, you know, it might be useful someday if they want to grow a garden to realize they shouldn't leave that in the back of the truck for six weeks. Yeah. What <laughs> did you learn? Yeah, that's exactly. That's, that's Keep good. my seeds in the truck. That's Do not. Not right in the sun anyway. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, we've also heard, when that you have chosen to use an interactive textbook. Oh, yeah. I love that thing. Tell us about it. I wanted to reduce costs for my students, and I heard that there was this new way to package a textbook um, that was called uh, inclusive access pricing. And so I read up on it a little bit, and I talked to our bookstore representative about it, and they said it was going to be significant savings for the students. And my textbook's expensive, so significant savings is always good. Um, and then also, in addition to the significant savings, it came with a whole bunch of cool stuff that the students got to use, including animations, which in a field where everything is too small to see, animations can be great for conceptualizing things. Though it comes with videos, it also comes with um, little self-quizzes. Uh, it comes with homework that I assign to get them to read the book. 
So the homework ties directly back to the chapter. And if they mess it up, it gives them hints and they can click on um, go back to chapter and like read that little part of the chapter again and refresh their memory and give it another stab. And I, at this point, have given them unlimited opportunities to solve it. In other words, fight it till you get it. Then you're going to get all the points on the homework. And my students typically fight it till they get it. Like almost all of them will keep doing it till they get 100. You might see nine tries on a problem, they'll do it. So yeah, so I'm really uh, excited because if they're interacting with the content that many times, yeah. it shows determination, they're yeah. sharpening that and their problem solving skills. So I got it to save them money, but I think it is actually helping them be more prepared as they come to lecture because they're fighting through some of the content. And that book is not an easy book. It sounds like you're you're saying it's a success so far. It seems to be. Um, I wish I had a measure and I may be able to figure one out to see like what the difference would be with the interactive text versus without. The biggest success to me is I look at the percent engagement with the book, which I never knew before. So it's against, you know, I'm comparing against an unknown data set. Um, but I certainly anecdotally had students say we never cracked the book open. Now they're actually doing it because I am incentivizing them uh, to do it because you get points toward your total points in the class and nobody wants to leave points behind. So they're like, oh, yes, we will play with this book. We will figure out these things. We will get these points. And then um, that helps them solve the problems we do in class. And then uh, the, the problems that I give on exams. So um, a lot of my exams, you basically take concepts from like three different chapters and you put it all together and it's a real life scenario and you solve it. So if they've done homework, that's maybe on one concept at a time or maybe two. And then we've done a couple in class where they're feeding a couple together then it's not such a big step up to solve those on an exam. So, but yeah, it's good. I I, uh, I like it. Um, the students so far, their biggest um, thing in terms of of advertising for it or, or supporting it, I guess, would be uh, they like the reduced price for the book. Mm. And they also like the fact that they can, if they're going to read it, they're getting points for it. So, um, yeah, so it does incentivize people to read books. Are these your bio majors or are these yes, upper molecular, level? Yes, typically molecular bio, okay. upper division students, so in advanced cell bio. And um, I'm teaching molecular in the fall, so we're doing it there too. I saw that that package was available for my molecular students. And there, I've already been starting to look at things we can do. Um, there are some open educational resources that are multi-module interactive things that you can do with DNA structure and protein structure. And so I'm already trying to see where I'm going to fit them around my textbook because my textbook doesn't have enough information for molecular. So I was like, I need some more things to get them to get their hands on it. And then I found all these OERs last night and I was like, oh my goodness, sending them to my friends who teach biochem. Like there's a lot out there. Um, so I'm excited to try some of those even, you know, things I haven't tried before in the fall teaching molecular. Uh, but the um, textbook, the inclusive access, yeah, I'd encourage other people to try it. They'll save their students some money and probably increase the number of students who are reading the book. One of the questions that I have for you, you've been teaching for 26 years. Yeah. And you've probably seen quite a bit in terms of your teaching load from lower level all the way up to upper level. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges that Dr. Mack referenced in, in our interaction with him was the necessity of 
maintaining the social order, I guess. Maybe that's the wrong word. Essentially, the teacher-student relationship. The teacher-student relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maintaining that hierarchy. Is there anything you'd like to share? Anything you'd like to tell others how you've handled that or a good way of handling classroom and sometimes those opportunities when you have students who behave in such a way that it's it's not in keeping with Christian character. Mm -hmm. I think that's a kind way of saying it. Yeah. So I'm trying to think. Honestly, mostly the students that I teach are fairly driven students. So they, for the most part, they want to get the most they can get out of the classes. So they tend to be pretty respectful. Now, for one, they know that I am on their team. So I think that's something that I've always tried to show my students is basically I am here to empower you to learn things so that God can use you in whatever field you go into. So whatever class that you're taking, I want to help get you prepared. That's my job. Um, but, but do you say that to them? Yeah. Oh, wow. And um, I tell them that I cannot do that preparation. I'm here to help them learn, right? So they have to be active, but I am here to help and I am on your side. If you're struggling, you need to come let me know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for the most part, I have seen students respond well to that. They will come if they need help. So I have not, I, I have heard rumors that, oh, now um, Gen Z compared to Gen X and the millennials, like there's more uh, issues with respect. I have heard those rumors, but I haven't actually experienced it, which might seem kind of odd or like I'm in denial. But uh, honestly, people are pretty respectful. They know that I want them to do well and that I am trying to help them achieve what, you know, the best that they can do for God's glory and honor, which we stress that as well. Like, this is, you're entrusted with this task right now. God, you are a student right now. This is what, at this point in your life, this is your job. You need to give an accounting of that to God. So, yeah, so maybe maybe that helps people kind of think about it a little bit. Be like, yeah, it's actually something we need to take kind of seriously because it is part of our accountability to to our God is how we are studying and using our our minds and you know, we're called to love God with all of our mind. And you know, we want to sharpen that. I mean, we don't want to be loving him with an undeveloped mind that we could have developed more but we're too lazy to. If you could speak to new faculty, mm -hmm. not just at Cedarville, but all across the country, especially in science, mm -hmm. what what advice would you give them? What would you say to them? You had five, well, not, let's not say five minutes. Let's call it. You got, it's an elevator pitch. Yeah, so you elevator got pitch. You got a minute, seconds. 60 seconds. What would you say? I guess I would say never give up on the students. Um, just continue... Everything that you love about science is still true. So what draws people to science is being able to understand how the world works and the infinite curiosity about that. And that is still true. And if you can instill that in your students, if you can let them catch that, so to speak, um, that will drive your students a long way. If they themselves are curious about how the world works, then it's not memorize and spew time. It's let's get her done time. 
Um, and that is something that that um, I would stress to uh, to colleagues, especially when you're first teaching and you kind of get bogged down by the content is X and I have to, quote, get through that content. There's a lot of ways to present content. You don't have to do it all in lecture. And um, if you can present things in a way that lets the students interact with it and catch the excitement of understanding something new, they will have that intrinsic motivation is going to be tremendously helpful to them, not just in the intro classes, but all the way as far as they ever go. And probably not just in science. Like I think that way because that's all of my training is in science. None of it's in education. Even what I learned about education is mostly by doing science trial and error, um, so to speak, and then reading other people's uh, experiences and trying to graft those into my trial and error, right? So it's, it's a different way of, of learning about um, education. So, so we come at it differently. Like scientists, just we're, we're just our own kind of odd breed of human, and it's basically everything's a problem to be solved, and you can do it. Um, but we want to we infuse our students with that early on so that they don't think of science as being memorization of a large pile of boring stuff that you have to do to check a box to get a good job and make a lot of money. Um, one of the biggest things that I tell my students is I want you to think of science as a verb. It's something you do. It's not just a noun. It's not just a thing. It's something you do. We practice science. It's how we apprehend creation in order to have dominion and stewardship over it. Thank you, Dr. Kitt. Dr. K. That's what everybody usually calls Dr. me. Dr. K. Can, yeah. can we call you Dr. Oh, K? Oh, yeah. Everybody's uh-huh. called me that. That's what I get called more than my name or mom. Oh, oh really? I get Dr. called K. Dr. K more than anything else All in the right. whole world. It's wild. Thank you for joining us, Dr. K, today. And that's going to do it for us on Transform Your Teaching for this episode. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Transform Your Teaching podcast. Please subscribe or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. For more information, you can email us at ctlpodcast at cedarville.edu. Please consider subscribing to our blog, Focus, found at cedarville.edu forward slash focus blog.